Our scripture today is from Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw this, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, and times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive, until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from his people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and all those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For those of you who are newer to faith and maybe have nudged your neighbor already and saying, who's the old guy up there today? Well, I am, uh, I guess I should introduce myself. I am Tom Macy, Pastor Emeritus is my current title. I was lead pastor here from 04 to 2017 and in a reduced role in pastoral care, currently at 20%. Uh, That covers a wide array of experience, puts me in close relationship with uh, many of you in times of distress. A personal crisis, sickness decline, and yes, in times of death. Uh, very much a part of my life, funerals are, as they have been for the past 47 years since my first funeral 47 years ago uh, this month. That, of course, includes family. I've done a number of funerals over the years for Linda's family, 
in Kansas and uh, Arkansas, several for my own family. Uh, This past April, my sister-in-law, Robin, uh, wife of my baby brother, John, died of metastatic breast cancer at age 64 after 12 years after first diagnosis. And uh, after her funeral in Concordia, Kansas, uh, we traveled 48 miles to the city of Oak Hill, Kansas, all in funeral procession, those 48 miles. Oak Hill is a busy city of 24 people. At least that was the census in 2000. It may be less now. And we went about two or three miles out of town to the Wesleyan Cemetery, where six generations of Macy's are buried, starting with my great, great, great grandmother, whose name was Delilah. I don't know whose idea it was to name her Delilah, but they did. Uh, That was in 1897, and then all the way down the sixth generation, my sister Laura in 2019, and most recently, Robin. As part of uh, uh, of Robin's interment, John, her husband, wanted us to sing. So the song leader from their church in Concordia brought a box of hymn books along. We had around 50 or more people out there, I believe. And he brought his trumpet in one hand. And while the casket was being lowered into the vault to be lowered into the grave, we sang. And we sang some more because the handle wasn't properly folded down and it got stuck on the vault and wouldn't go in. So the truck had to be brought back. It took quite a while. Back up, use the hoist, lift the casket up again, get it folded down properly, and then finally put it into the vault. And so we kept singing. Now, cemeteries, you may have not thought of it this way, but cemeteries are wonderful places to sing. So we sang hymn after hymn. And as we sang, How Great Thou Art... My youngest grandson, four-year-old Owen, said in amazement to his mommy, how did they know my bedtime song? He calls it the O Lord song, because that's how it starts, O Lord my God. You see, Owen thought his daddy had just made up that song special for him for his bedtime. And he was amazed that the rest of us knew it. Well, hearing that story made me happy to know that my grandboys are learning early in life, both at home and church, through Bible story and song, the essential content and the necessary response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't know how many verses he's gotten down on how great thou art, but I hope he really, really settles in with verse 3. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die... I scarce can take it in, for on that cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Well, in this book of Acts, the history of the early church, we see what the earliest believers of Jesus believed, those who witnessed his life, death, and resurrection, what they believed and what they preached. And it's here where they clearly set forth in these early chapters of Acts and repeated throughout the New Testament the essential content of and the necessary response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Acts 3, 11 to 26, today's passage, does that very thing. This is part two of an event that 
uh, took place one day when Peter and John went to the temple to pray, and uh, Pastor Joey unfolded that for us last week. And they were instruments of God for the healing of a lame beggar at the temple gate, this man who had never walked. Not one step in his entire life was begging for alms. Peter commanded him, much to his shock, he was asking for help. Peter said, I don't have, I don't have silver or gold, but um, he said, this is what I can do for you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then Peter reached out his hand to help him get up. And immediately he began to walk. More than walking, walking and leaping and praising God. What's happening here? This man was well known. Uh, He'd been there for years. He's not a fake plant for a contemporary healing service, as is so common today, tragically. This was a real verified miracle. So the text says, verses 9 and 10, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. They recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple. It's a long history here, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. What happened next, verse 12, is that as the word spread about what had happened, a crowd began to gather at what is called the portico called Solomon's. Now, this was also called Solomon's Colonnade. It it is the east, along the east wall of the temple. If you've been to Israel, you're, you're already picturing this. A long, steep embankment on the other side of the wall, across the Kidron Valley to the um, Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed before he was arrested. That Part of the temple, of course, the original that we're talking about here was torn down in 70 AD, but a lot of it's been built back, a crusader wall. And that was about an eighth of a mile long, all covered porch, and a common place where the people would gather. Jesus spoke there. Uh, Probably it's where he was when he gave the I am the good shepherd talk. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Oh, there's a gospel essential. It's where Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. That's a necessary response. It became a gathering place for the early church. It was a place to go and pray, probably because after this event, though, they also saw it as a strategic place for proclaiming the gospel. And as the crowds come because of the miracle Uh, Peter spontaneously spoke to them first to set the record straight that this miracle was not by his power or doing, or John's, but rather the sovereign work of the God of Abraham. He doesn't strategically see, aha, we've got a new idea. We're going to use miracles as our primary way of preaching the gospel, getting people's attention. That'll work. Well, it might work, but not the way it's intended to work. Peter is not deciding to play Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland or Morris Cirillo and dozens of other false prophets and charlatans who are all over supposed Christian television. 
Rather, he narrows his focus quickly to set forth the essentials of this new movement that's sweeping Jerusalem, setting forth the essential content and the necessary response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Pastor Joey rightly emphasized last Sunday that the real miracle here is far greater than a lame man walking. Well, that's a pretty amazing thing, isn't it? But the greater miracle, by the way, that, that miracle is temporary at best. This man still died. So it didn't last. He ended up in a grave just like everybody else. The real miracle, Joey said, is new life in Jesus. So let's dig into the text. Keep your Bible open to Acts 3:11 to 26, page 1083 uh, in the Bible under the chair in front of you. And let's walk through this. How do you explain this healing? Uh, Peter starts by addressing that. Verse 12, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. And I'm thinking, Peter forgot the question. He's not addressing the question. Going off on another topic. The question is, who healed this man? Well, keep going. You'll get there. In verse 16, he says, And his name, Jesus, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. And Peter, please notice, doesn't say anything more about healing. He leaves that topic. But, but I'm saying, Peter, I, I've got some questions. You, you may not want to talk anymore, but I have some questions about this. You said it was the faith that's through Jesus. Whose faith was it? Was it the beggar's faith? Well, I guess he exercises some faith by taking Peter's hand. Totally bewildered, I'm sure. What's going on here? He won't give me any money, but he's saying he's going to heal me. And so I guess he exercised some faith there. But mainly, what you see, he's clinging to Peter and John. He's just kind of overwhelmed. I mean, the man's never walked before. And he doesn't stumble around like a one-year-old trying to figure out how to walk. He just can walk and jump and leap and run. But there's nothing really said about his personal faith response. It doesn't even say if he ever became a Christian. We don't know. I kind of think he probably did, but that's only my guess. Was it Peter's faith? Well, he certainly exercised faith, as the Holy Spirit led him to say, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazareth, rise up and walk. He exercised faith. I mean, taking quite a chance, unless you're confident God's going to do this to reach out and claim to... to, to to see a healing of a, of a man who's been lame his entire life. But Peter isn't interested in talking about the healing anymore or answering any of our questions about it. He just gives the credit to Jesus and moves on because Peter knows that he has something infinitely more important to say than anything about the healing. And so as we unpack Peter's sermon today, we're going to see the essential content of the gospel and then the necessary response to the gospel 
And he doesn't give us a neatly divided two-point sermon. It's blended into his message. So let's dig in and dig out what we find. And we start, and about 80% of our remaining time will be given to this first issue, the essential content of the gospel. First thing Peter establishes is that the gospel fills a desperate need of all humanity, starting with the people surrounding him that day, the thousands perhaps on Solomon's portico, but including the people who surround you day by day on whatever porch you're on or wherever you are. But before the need itself can be addressed, there must be someone who's able to address that need effectively. And so we start with a set of questions. First question, who is Jesus? Now notice that Peter starts with uh, the commonality he shared with his Jewish audience of their common descent from Abraham, the God of Abraham, the God of of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. And that's a great way to start a talk. He he must have taken speech class. You you identify, you, you create a common understanding of something that bonds you to your audience. Find common ground. In this case, a shared Abrahamic faith. But he doesn't linger there. He immediately puts the focus on where it really matters. The God of Abraham glorified his servant Jesus. Now, that immediately raises a controversy. Maybe you've forgotten or not read this. But not long before this, Jesus had these dialogues with Jewish leaders, probably in this very same place, or certainly close by, that, 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 that got pretty edgy. Uh, how does Jesus, of a little no-count town called Nazareth, about like Oak Hill, Kansas, that's what it's like, how does Jesus get into the same league with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, all the greats of the Old Testament? That's the big question in all the Gospels, but especially the Gospel of John. And again, probably in this same place in John 8 where Jesus got into a very tense discussion with the Pharisees about his relationship to Abraham, and he said at the end of it, before Abraham was born, I am. And that was the end of the conversation because the next thing was the Jews picked up stones to throw at him. Earlier in this argument with Jesus, they said, you're not yet 50 years old, and you seen Abraham? You lived 2,000 years ago. Actually, Jesus was still in his 30s. Claims to have preceded Abraham, who lived 2,000 years earlier, and more than that, Jesus refers to himself as the I am. The words of God to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. Peter goes on to here to call Jesus, uh, verse 14, the holy and righteous one. Verse 15, the author of life, terms that can only apply to God the creator. So who's Jesus? Well, you first have to consider what Jesus said about himself. And it's clear that Jesus claimed to be God, eternally existing with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the triune God. 
This is the same issue that C.S. Lewis brings up in Mere Christianity. Whatever you think about Jesus, you cannot, you cannot conclude anything about Jesus without addressing his own claims that he was God. You either believe him or you consider him a liar or a lunatic. And he evaluated those options, and that didn't make any sense. So he said, you must bow your knee to Jesus. Peter leans into that, saying, the God of Abraham glorified Jesus. He's not putting Jesus in Abraham's league. He tried that once before. The the glorification account. The uh, account in, in, in Matthew 17, when Moses and Abraham showed up, and Elijah, uh, I think I have the right guys in mind, and, and they're ready to, to build something to honor all these guys. And a voice from heaven says, listen to him. I'm not here to put Jesus in the same category with these guys. Jesus is above them, infinitely above them. Again, read the Gospel of John. Jesus is identified as God in the flesh. Our second question under the essential content of the Gospel is, uh, what happened to Jesus? Uh, Paul makes a summary statement of the Gospel uh, Uh, much more neatly and concisely stated than what we find here, I suppose. But uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. So there's two essential parts that are identified throughout the New Testament, the crucifixion, death of Jesus, and his resurrection. Peter says the same thing in verses 13 to 15, the climax, of course, being the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, which verifies the significance of his death and its purpose. In verse 15, to this we are witnesses. And to those who will not receive the gospel to those who deny the gospel. This is the insurmountable problem. The overwhelming evidence of the resurrection of Jesus with hundreds of witnesses on hand that Jesus was confirmed dead and seen alive again. In fact, decades later, Paul is saying there's still 500 alive who were witnesses, who are witnesses. But here Peter's focus is more on the cross. And if Peter started off well by finding common ground in Abraham, well, he must have skipped class and speech class the day they covered this because he, he violated every common sense rule for winning an audience as he goes on to say, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you, And you killed the author of life. Peter, it's no way to win friends and influence people by accusing your audience of being killers. This isn't the first time. In Peter's first sermon in Acts 2, he does the same thing. He tells the crowd, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. What's his point? His point is, he takes us right to the cross where the most significant act of human love in all of human history 
by far took place as Jesus died for sinners. There's no gospel, there's no good news, there's no hope without the cross and the empty tomb. But there's also no hope until you understand your need for what happened on the cross. So, Peter addresses the question, who killed Jesus? It's one of the most inflammatory questions in all of church history as the Jews have been singled out by some as Christ killers. And Peter, a strict Jew himself, seems to confirm that. Well, let's take a closer look. Acts 2, he clearly identifies the collaboration of Jews and Gentiles to kill Jesus. Acts 3, he identifies the pressure of the Jews on Pilate, the Gentile, to condemn Jesus to death. Acts 4, next week's passage, we'll take a look at verse 27, where the church is gathered in prayer after Peter and John had been arrested and put in jail and released and told never to preach this again. And the prayer includes this. It's a prayer for courage to keep on doing that, which is going to get them in a lot of trouble. And the prayer includes this, praying to God, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Who was responsible for the death of Jesus? Well, a whole group. Herod, Pilate, Roman soldiers, Israel, everyone was responsible And so Peter's point is not to place the blame on one class or ethnicity of people. If he were preaching here, he would say, you are responsible for killing Jesus. And you're responsible, and you're responsible. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what led to the death of Jesus. Everyone here desperately needs a sacrifice to atone for sin. But... If we stop there, we don't get the point at all. Ultimately, the answer to the question, who killed Jesus? God killed Jesus. In the eternal counsel of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this was planned before the foundation of the world. It says in a number of passages, I think the last time in Revelation 13.8. But go through these same three chapters. And see how this is developed. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed. But it was God's idea. It was God's plan. Chapter 3, verse 13, the God of Abraham glorified his servant Jesus. And it's implied here that the crucifixion death of Jesus was part of that plan to glorify Jesus. But look at verse 17, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he, God, thus fulfilled. God prophesied it. God fulfilled it. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. For on the cross, my burden, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And Peter's Jewish audience, well-versed in Hebrew prophecy, 
would call to mind such passages as Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 as the Holy Spirit was awaking their hearts to see what is obvious when you're thinking about these passages, that indeed these texts, these prophecies of long ago, in fact the whole pattern of sacrifice throughout the Old Testament has been fulfilled in Jesus. This is no accident. This is not plan B. This was God's design all along. Look at Acts 4.28, the Jews and Gentiles conspired against Jesus, but it goes on to say to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Or as the NIV says, they did what your your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. This was God's idea. According to the divine plan, Jesus was killed. And that's why he was conceived and born into humanity to die for sinners For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave him for what purpose? To die for us. The reason for Christmas is Good Friday. The reason Jesus came to die by crucifixion. So, So we consider the essential content of the gospel. Who is Jesus, God in the flesh? What happened to Jesus? He died for sinners and was raised from the dead. The third question of gospel essentials is what was the purpose? I can only touch on this very simply. certainly developed very richly throughout the New Testament. But uh, in the general word, a very broad term found about 45 times in the New Testament is is the purpose is for salvation. Um. Paul doesn't use that word here, but he describes key aspects of what salvation entails. Salvation is to give eternal life to those who are spiritually dead. Verse 15, Jesus is called the author of life. Not only as the creator of all things, but to give life from the dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but he made you alive in Christ. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit to give the new birth to those who are dead in their sins. Salvation involves the forgiveness of sin. Used more than 50 times in the New Testament, though the word is not in this passage, but the idea is developed even more so, verse 19, that your sins may be blotted out, more than forgiven, made to disappear. No longer held against you, no more threat to condemn you but to be free from guilt and sin, to be declared righteous before God. That's the gift of salvation that Jesus provides for you who paid for your sins. But there's one more thing that really gets the most verse attention, a number of verses or or, uh, amount of attention in this text that we just can't develop much today, but I want to at least address it. Uh, Peter speaks of salvation not just in personal terms for each individual, but in terms of salvation that is the undoing of all that went wrong when sin entered into the world, Genesis 3, with Adam and Eve. And all the suffering that is in human experience and in the world since that time, including today, all the concerns about the climate today, The whole creation is under the curse of sin. And the good news, the whole creation will participate in the salvation that's provided 
Peter speaks in verse 21 of the restoration of all things. Verse 20 says that following the blotting out of all sin, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Jesus will come back, but not for some time, a time unknown to us. And he'll wait until, look at the text again, verse 21, the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the prophets long ago. And same thing, tracing the teaching of Moses, then Samuel, and all the prophets, even those who speak of frightful judgments. I'm reading the uh, minor prophets right now. It's, 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 it's not easy reading sometimes. But they also, they speak of God's immediate judgment. They speak of God's restoring grace upon Israel and upon the whole world, the nations. Verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, quoting from Genesis 12, 3, and in your offspring shall all the families, not just Israel, but all the families of the earth be blessed. Verse 26, God, having raised up his servants, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And he directs us uh, to all that the prophets said about God's ultimate purpose, which will eventually lead, as Isaiah says, and the book of Revelation confirms, and as Peter himself then includes in his first letter later in the New Testament, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Oh, how can we not long for that day? the ultimate fulfillment of our salvation, the restoration of all things. So, in summary, Peter sets forth the essential content of the gospel. Who is Jesus? God in the flesh. What happened to Jesus? He died for our sins. He was raised from the dead. That's history. But we have a peek into the future, the restoration of all things. What was the purpose? Salvation from sin and its effects, including eternal life, the forgiveness of sin, and the restoration of all things. Another essential question remains. We'll just take a couple of minutes on this. The essential content of the gospel demands a necessary response to the gospel. The question was asked by a man later on in the book of Acts, a story of Paul and Silas who were thrown into jail, and the jailer uh, was influenced by them, and then there was an earthquake, and there was a breakout from the jail caused by the earthquake, and the man's terrified, his life's on the line, keep the prisoners under control, and he's in panic, and he just simply cries out, what must I do to be saved? We all need to ask, ask that question. After Peter accuses them of killing Jesus, he seems to give them a pass in verse 17. He says, now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. And it brings to mind the words of Jesus, those glorious words, Father, from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They're ignorant. But in fact, be careful with this. He's not giving us a pass forever. It's true, yes. You can be forgiven for killing Jesus. And I'll be thankful for that. 
But we can't be forgiven for ignoring and neglecting the offer of salvation, the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus came to provide. Ultimately, the unforgivable sin, I believe, is not even a whole lot of things that you worry about. Oh, I did this. Can I be forgiven? Yes. I did this. Can I be forgiven? Yes. The unforgivable sin is refusing until death the gift of salvation. So what must we do? Well, verse 19 tells us what to do, and the key word is repent. It's a, it's a word not in common use these days. It means to change your mind. There's actually two words that often are translated repent. The first one means to, to change your mind about this. Uh, it it involves, repentance does involve uh, contrition, uh, remorse, regret, shame, a godly sorrow for our rebellion against God and the way that's worked out in our lives. But the main idea is to change your mind, to, to understand and embrace the truth of the gospel. And the second word has the idea of turning back. Don't just feel bad about going the wrong way and says, well, I guess I got it right and I need to think differently about this. But no, stop and turn around. Stop going this way and go this way. That's just really another way of saying believe in Jesus. Early sermons in Acts uh, put greater emphasis on repentance as the door to salvation, standing out more than faith. Though Faith is mentioned here in verse 16. But the two can't be separated Context indicates the emphasis, that Philippian jailer that said, what must I do to be saved? The man was terrified. He's already listened to these guys share the gospel, singing while they're in prison. These guys guys are a little weird, Acts 16. And so when he says, what must I do to be saved? he's, He's already in the act of repentance. And so Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And this is so true today. The Bible's filled with much deeper understanding of salvation. We've stayed on an elementary level today, but a foundational level. Tells us how to live that out in our personal lives and in the world for our good, for the common good of our community and the world, and for God's glory. But it starts with these gospel essentials. Who is Jesus? What did he do for you, a needy sinner? What is your response? Would you bow with me in prayer? I want to give you just an opportunity for uh, some quiet moments to reflect on what we've talked about today. Uh, Many of you are secure in your faith. You're trusting in Jesus. You're seeking to serve him and follow him. Some of you are, maybe you've never heard it explained this way. Maybe you thinking, you know, I've got it. I'm a pretty good person. I do my best. But you've not acknowledged your own need of Jesus. Not of works, not of your works, not of the good things you do, but what Christ has done for you. Indeed, Jesus died for you because you couldn't do it for yourself. So I ask you just to think for a moment. Am I willing, as the Holy Spirit moves within me, am I willing to say yes to Jesus, to repent of doing it my way, and to follow him, to trust him, to believe in him? 
If so, I ask you just to, from your own heart, call out to the Lord and say, I repent. I turn from my way. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for loving me and doing this for me. Lord, as we all reflect on these truths, some of us looking back 50, 60 years or more and and seeing your graciousness and your patience with us as we continue the struggle with sin and others that maybe this is a whole new concept. God, may the foundational beauty of the gospel shine forth. May we see it and embrace it with joy. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.